You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Book of Acts, chapter 2. 1,976. 1,976 years. That's a long time, isn't it? That is how old the church is. Provided that the church came into being on the day of Pentecost in the year 30 AD, which is when it's basically accepted that it was the year 30 AD on the day of Pentecost, that means that the church at this time is 1,976 years old. We will celebrate our 2,000th anniversary uh, sometime in early summer, late spring of 2030, unless the Lord comes back before then and takes us home to be with Him. That will be the day that we celebrate 2,000 years. That's quite incredible, isn't it? 2,000-year-old entity. 1,976 years is a long time. That is how old the church is because that is when it came into being and when the Spirit of God came. And it was on the day of Pentecost, and that is what we refer to as the birth of the church, is the day of Pentecost in the year 30 A.D. And that's the subject of the book of Acts chapter 2 that we're going to be looking at this morning. Uh, the church did not exist in the Old Testament. Uh, it did not, was not foreshadowed really in the Old Testament. There were certain glimpses of it that you could see sort of in very vague forms in, from the Old Testament perspective, but as we come into the New Testament time, it is what Paul calls the mystery. It's something that was not made known, he says in Ephesians 3, verse, verses 3 through 10. It was something that was not made known in generations past to our fathers, but it is something that has now been made known to us through the prophets and the apostles. That God's plan was to bring together Jew and Gentile, all men, into this body of Christ known as the church. It's a mystery. Now, if you have ever witnessed the birth of something, you know it's quite an unforgettable experience. And I have been at the birth of all four of my children. If you've ever watched a child be born, you know that it is something that you cannot ever forget. No matter how hard you try, you cannot ever forget that. What must it have been like to be there to witness the birth of the church? It had to have been a phenomenal event. An incredible event. Because the church, that entity that exists as a result of Christ purchasing it on the cross by shedding His own blood for the church, that entity is the, the culmination of all that the Old Testament predicted and all that the Old Testament foreshadowed. And so you have the apostles there on the day of Pentecost and they get to witness this. When we last left the apostles, they had filled the vacancy that was left by Judas. They needed a twelfth apostle. They selected one, Matthias. Now there are twelve, and they are waiting for the promise that the Lord had promised them, which is the coming of the Spirit. I don't know how if they had any idea how long they were to wait. Jesus told them it won't be many days. He didn't say many months or many years. So I assume that they're in Jerusalem waiting for these few days to, to tick by until the promise is fulfilled. I don't think they expected this to happen, what eventually happened, but... It does, and we read about it in Acts chapter 2. 
And that's where you should be in your Bibles because that's where you're going to be needing to follow along with me. In Acts chapter 2, as we look at these three things that Luke seems to emphasize from this account. Now, as we read Acts chapter 2, it raises in our minds all kinds of questions. Most, if not all of them, revolve around this phenomena of tongues. So let's be honest. We're going to have to deal with the subject of tongues as we go through the book of Acts. Because it comes up not only in Acts chapter 2, it comes up again in Acts chapter 8, it comes up again in Acts chapter 10, and it resurfaces once more in Acts chapter 19. Acts 2, 8, 10, and 19 all mention this phenomena of tongues. And so it's important for you and I to understand exactly what is it. So today what we're going to do is we're just going to look at what happened on the day of Pentecost, the events as they unfolded and and what characterized them and what went on and what is it that Luke records for us. And then what we're going to do in the next two weeks is we're going to take sort of a, a brief breather from the book of Acts and we're going to deal with the subject of tongues itself. What was it? What characterized it? Is it for us today? What was it like? Who had the gift? What was the purpose of tongues? Should you and I seek that experience? Should you and I be trying to speak in tongues? We'll deal with all of that in the next two weeks. Today, we're just going to stick with the account at Pentecost. And you may have all of these questions in your mind regarding this. And we will answer whatever questions can be answered from this text, because this is the text we're dealing with. And then next two weeks, we will go other places in the New Testament and begin to try and put this whole tongues thing in its perspective. And in the next two weeks, I'm going to approach tongues from this point of view. I'm going to assume that I'm speaking to people who hear me say the gift of tongues, and you have no clue what I'm talking about. Absolutely not the foggiest notion, not the beginnings of understanding the gift as it is given to us in the New Testament. So we're just going to lay the foundation. We're going to build from there. It'll take us about two weeks, I think, Lord willing. We'll deal with that. But for today, the day of Pentecost and this phenomenon, let's look what it says. Luke says to us in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, that it was on the day of Pentecost had come that we're all together in one place. Now Luke is going to emphasize three things. First of all, he's going to show us the results of Pentecost. That's in verses 1 through 4. Second, he is going to give to us the, the, uh, the reach of Pentecost. That's in verses 5 through 11. And the last thing he's going to show us is the reaction to it. And that's in verses 12 and 13. First of all, the results of Pentecost. Luke says it was on the day of Pentecost they were all gathered together. Now when I say Pentecost... More than likely, as Gentiles and as New Testament believers, 2,000 years separate from this, you are probably thinking in your mind the scene portrayed in Acts chapter 2 and not the scene that is portrayed in Leviticus chapter 23. Would I be safe to make that assumption? When I say Pentecost, you think Acts 2, right? You're not thinking Leviticus 23. How many of you, when I say Pentecost, are thinking, oh yeah, I'm familiar with that. Leviticus chapter 23 gives us all the details of that. You don't. You think Acts 2. Because you're on this side of it. But that's not what the apostles would have been thinking. They would have been thinking Leviticus 23. Because they grew up in this culture. So we've covered a little bit of the timetable that the book of Acts gives us. And I just want to review that. And then I want to show you that what we're dealing with when we talk about Pentecost is a feast day. The timetable goes like this. Jesus was crucified on a Friday. He was raised again on a Sunday. That is the first day of the week in the Jewish calendar. Passover ended on the Friday. They had a Sabbath, which was the Saturday. He was raised again on the the following Sunday, uh, that Sunday morning. That Sunday morning that he was raised was also a feast day. 
Then you have 50 days later is the day of Pentecost, which is also a feast day. So between the death of Christ and the coming of the Spirit, you have three very significant feasts. And they're all outlined in Leviticus chapter 23. The first feast was the Passover. And you know the Jews had to get Christ crucified before the Passover. They wanted it done before it started at sunset. So they rushed through the trials. They rushed through the crucifixion. They broke the legs so that they would die and they could get them off the crosses before Passover started the evening of the of that Friday. That Saturday, and, and of course Passover is all do, all has to do with the sacrificial lamb and the Exodus. You're familiar with that. Christ, the New Testament says, is our Passover lamb. He is the lamb of God crucified right before, during the Passover celebration. So while the Jewish high priest was in the temple cutting the throat for the evening sacrifice of the lamb, which was the Passover lamb, that was to be slain for the nation, at that same time, the Son of God, the Lamb of God, the sinless, spotless Son of God, was on a cross outside of Jerusalem, shedding His blood to atone for sins. And those two things were going on at the same time. So Christ, who is our Passover Lamb, is crucified during Passover. The Sunday after Passover, which is right after the the uh, the sacrifice of Christ, right after the Sabbath, which was on a Saturday, that Sunday was also a feast day. It was the feast of unleavened bread. On that Sunday, what they did was that first Sunday, they started the barley harvest. And they would bring in, before they would uh, finish harvesting their fields, they would harvest a little bit and they would take the first portion of that and they would offer the first fruits of their harvest to the Lord. They had a whole harvest that was to come. They took a little bit of it. They weren't allowed to eat any of the harvest or prepare any of it or harvest the rest of it until they had brought some of it as a first fruits offering and given it to the Lord. So while the people are in the temple offering to the Lord the first fruits of the harvest that is to come, Christ Himself was raised from the dead as the first fruits of the rest of us who will enjoy a resurrection. So He was raised on a feast day. Then Leviticus 23 says that you were to count, they were to count seven complete Sabbaths from that feast of unleavened bread, seven complete Sabbaths, which was seven weeks, and during that time was the barley harvest. At the end of that time landed on a Sabbath, on the next day, which was the 50th day from Passover, and Pentecost means 50th. On the 50th day from Passover, they were to offer another offering to the Lord, which was the first fruits of the grain harvest. So they would bring into the temple, they would offer that. No work was to be done. The day of Pentecost was also called the Feast of Weeks, because it was seven weeks, or a week of weeks, from Passover. So it was the Feast of Weeks. And on that, on that day, they were to bring into the temple the first fruits of the next harvest, the next crop that they were to harvest, and offer that to the Lord. And they gave that to the Lord. Now, on Pentecost, the Jews, growing up in that culture, are not thinking coming of the Holy Spirit. They're not thinking any of that. These apostles are in the temple, probably, uh, sitting together, together in one place. They're celebrating the Feast of Pentecost. Uh, probably not really expecting anything. It's They did it every year it happened. They came to Jerusalem and celebrated the Feast of Pentecost. They're offering to the Lord the first fruits of their harvest. And it's a day of thanksgiving for the abundant harvest that He has given to them. And it's a day of expecting to give thanks for the harvest that is to follow, which is the grain. But there's something else significant about Pentecost. The Jews are not only thinking thanksgiving to God for His abundant harvest, They're also thinking about the law because according to Jewish tradition, it was on that day, the 50th day after they came out of Egypt and celebrated the Passover, that God met with Moses on Mount Sinai and gave him the law. So all those Jews, as they come to Jerusalem, they're meditating upon their thankfulness to God for what He has given to them, and they're thinking about the law. 
They're thinking about God who thundered from Sinai and wrote His law on tablets of stone with His own finger. And the Ten Commandments that Moses brought down, that was when they remembered that giving of the law. You see, for a Jew, Pentecost means you remember the law. For a Christian, Pentecost means what? The Spirit. For a Jew, they think about tablets of stone, written in stone, the condemnation of God. The Christian thinks of Pentecost and he thinks the coming of the Spirit, which is the lawgiver residing within, writing His law on our hearts, taking away our heart of stone, giving us a heart of flesh. Two totally different ideas. So all those Jews are in Jerusalem. They're thinking law. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. Thou shalt not. And they're remembering the giving of the law. And the law is going over and over in their minds. And they're understanding we've broken the law. We've violated the law. That's why the Passover lamb is sacrificed. That's why the Day of Atonement. That's why all the feasts and the sacrifice. Because we violated God's law. That's what all the Jews are thinking on the Day of Pentecost. Thanking God and remembering the law which they've broken that was given to Moses by God. That's what's in their mind. So when Peter stands up, what does Peter say? Oh, yeah. You crucified the Son of God. He's the sacrifice for your sin. Although, that, friends, that is ripe ground for the Gospel. When you get people thinking about the fact that they have violated the law of God and there is a holy God who must judge their sin, 3,000 people get saved on the day of Pentecost. Why? All these people are thinking about the law. All these people are mulling over the fact that they've broken God's law and they stand condemned. So that's all the background of Pentecost. And Luke says it was on the day of Pentecost that they were all together. Look what he says. They were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. Now you're going to notice that there are three phenomena that Luke records that are associated with this event. The first one, Luke says, suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And that is the phenomena of sound. They hear something. Now, it's like the sound of rushing wind. It's not wind. They weren't sitting inside and then experienced this gust of air that comes through that blows their hair and their papers all over and turns the pages of their Bibles. None of that. It is a sound that they hear. It's like the sound of rushing wind. Maybe like being in a wind tunnel. Maybe like a hurricane. Maybe like a tornado. There's some sort of thunderous phenomena that they hear. They don't feel it. They hear this loud noise. And you'll see later on that this noise is loud enough that all these devout Jews who are in Jerusalem hear the noise and they gather together to this place where the apostles are at. Because they hear this loud phenomena. Now it's not unusual for God to manifest Himself or to speak through wind or for wind to be associated with the divine presence. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, God, when speaking of His justice or His judgment, would talk about the breath of His nostrils and the blast of His, his breath, which would bring judgment. Also, God spoke to Job out of a what? A whirlwind. So you have this idea of wind being associated with the divine presence. And while they're all gathered together, they hear this sound, and Luke says that they were sitting. That's indication to us that they were not praying. At that time, you prayed, you were standing up, or you were kneeling down. They were sitting. And we don't know where they were sitting. Luke's being very brief, and there's a lot of questions he doesn't answer. Were they sitting in the temple? Were they sitting in this upper room where they were at beforehand? We know later on that Peter preaches, and there are 3,000 people and more, 3,000 of whom get saved. So we know they can't be in the upper room of somebody's house if 3,000 people are going to be there and get saved. 
So at some point, they move outside or out into the temple, or maybe they're in the temple celebrating the day of Pentecost. The twelve apostles are there together. This, they hear this loud noise, and then there is this other phenomenon, and that of sight. And what they hear is the sound of a rushing wind, and then Luke says, they see, or there appeared to them, tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. That's the second phenomenon. Not only is there something very audible about this, a very loud noise, but there's also something that is very visual, something that they can see. And what is it? Luke says it was as if tongues of fire, as of fire. It's not fiery tongues, but it's something supernatural that resembles a tongue on fire that rests upon each of them. Now, I wish I knew what that was like. I wish I I knew what that had looked like. I would love to have been there to see this. What exactly was it? Well, Luke can only describe it as tongues, they're, they're like fire. And we don't know how long these tongues rested on them. We don't know if it came for a period of time. Was the tongue there while Peter was preaching to the crowd? Could the crowd see it? Or could just the apostles see it? We don't know any of that. Luke's being very brief. You know why he's being brief? Because he's not answering our questions regarding the sound. He's really not interested in telling us about the sight. There's the third phenomenon that he focuses the rest of this passage on, and that is the speech. There's an audible sound. There is something visual. And the third thing is the phenomena of the speech. And look what Luke says in verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, you need to understand that this is the work of the Spirit of God, and that's what Luke is trying to focus on. They each began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, they're not praying to receive this. They're sitting. They're doing what they do on the day of Pentecost. Nobody is working on that day. They've made their offering, probably in the temple. They're sitting down. They're not praying to receive this. They're not tarrying in prayer. They're not expecting this. It comes suddenly. And opposite of what you hear from so many charismatic circles in the church today, they weren't doing anything to get this blessing. They weren't giving, doing anything to receive this, this gift. They're just sitting. And that's because it's the Spirit who gives it and it's the Spirit who is sovereign. And He comes when He wants to come and He does what He wants to do. And it's His work. And you cannot manipulate Him. You cannot manipulate the Spirit of God into giving you some gift or some ability. You can't pray and pull the divine strings and get the Spirit of God to manifest Himself like your little puppet to display your signs and wonders or to manifest some giftedness. You don't do any of that. They're just taken aback by the fact that this happens. And it's not in conjunction with anything that they're doing. The Lord promised that it would come. And it sovereignly came on the day that He wanted it to come, at the time that He wanted it to come, and they weren't, they didn't see it coming. They were there waiting. They didn't know what to expect. They're not working themselves up into an emotional frenzy and then begin to speak in tongues. None of that. What are they doing? Sitting in the temple. That's all they're doing. And it's the Spirit who gives them the utterance. They don't go to a class for this. They're not coached. They don't go to a seminar. Nobody comes to them and says, you need to learn to speak this language. Here, let me rattle your jaw a little bit. Let me knock you down and hit you on the forehead. Let's get us up in this emotional frenzy and then we'll all be speaking. None of that. It just happens. 
It's a supernatural thing that God did. And they're not coaxing or manipulating the Holy Spirit into doing this. They're not expecting it. They're not asking for it. They're not praying. Nobody says to them, you got to do this thing. This is how the Spirit of God manifests itself. It's just a miraculous occurrence. And Luke says, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now the question is, who's the they? Have you asked yourself that question? Who, who is it here that ends up speaking in tongues? There are really only two possibilities as to who the they can refer to. The they can either refer to the 12 apostles or the they can refer to the 120 that's mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 15. At that time, there were 120 gathered together. So was it all the believers who were present who started to speak in tongues or was it just the apostles? My conviction is that it's just the apostles and I'll tell you why. The reference to the 120 is a parenthetical reference and it refers to who was present at the time of the choosing of Matthias. It doesn't necessarily refer to who's present on the day of Pentecost because we don't know that those two events happened on the same day. The they, as you trace it all the way through chapter 1, it's the apostles who are the focus of everything. It's just parenthetically referenced that there are 120 present when they choose Matthias. But the they are out on the mount with Jesus. They see Him lifted up into the sky. They come back to Jerusalem. They go to the upper room. They put forth two men to, as possible apostles. They pray. They cast lots. Chapter 2, they are gathered together. Who's the they? It's the apostles. That's who it is. It's the apostles who are together. We have no indication that those other 120 were present on this occurrence. So who's speaking in tongues? I think it's the apostles. Second, you'll notice in verse 7 that those who hear them speak in tongues, they were amazed and astonished, saying, why, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? You see, they could say that about the 12 apostles. You couldn't say that about all 132 of them. You couldn't say that about the whole group. But they could single out the apostles and say, the ones that we hear speaking, these men are Galileans. And that singles them out. Furthermore, at the end of this event, when Peter gives his sermon to all those who are present and people are saved, look down at verse 17, 37. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. That is, all these people who heard Peter's sermon, they were pierced to the heart and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do to be saved? They didn't ask the 120. Who did they ask? The people that they see this sign manifest itself on, which is the apostles. Who's the they? It's the apostles. Now there's two things going on here. In verses 1-4, through four, one of them is a non-repeatable event and one of them is a repeatable event. And you need to differentiate between these two things. The repeatable event is that they are filled with the Spirit of God. That is something that is repeated over and over and over again in your life and in my life. We're commanded to be filled with the Spirit. And we are filled with the Spirit when we are filled with God's Word and we are in God's Word, obeying God's Word. The Spirit of God is residing in us. We're not quenching the Spirit. We're not grieving the Spirit through our sin. And as we yield ourselves to the Spirit of God and to obedience to the Word of God, we are filled with the Spirit of God. That is an over, uh, that is a repeated event. It says of Paul twice in the book of Acts that he was filled with the Spirit. Same thing with Stephen. Same thing with Peter. More than one time they're filled. And you and I are commanded to be filled by the Spirit. And that is something that happens over and over again in our lives as we yield ourselves to the control of the Spirit of God. But there's something going on here that's non-repeatable. And that's the event of Pentecost itself. You cannot repeat this. This is a one-time, once-for-all event. Pentecost is not repeatable. The Spirit came at one time. And that's what theologians refer to as the baptism of the Spirit. 
You and I are never commanded to seek that. You and I are never commanded to pray for it. You and I are commanded to be filled with the Spirit, but never to be baptized in the Spirit. Why? Because whether you know it or not, you have already been baptized by the Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, by one Spirit we were all baptized, that is, we were all placed into Christ. We were all baptized into Christ. Galatians 3.27, all of us have been baptized into Christ. That is that one-time event where the Spirit of God came into the church to indwell believers like He never did in the Old Testament. He came to indwell believers and manifest Himself in the church, in believers individually, and through the church corporately. That is a one-time event. When the Spirit of God put believers in the body of Christ and He indwells the church and the church is born, that can never be repeated again. And at that moment, all of us were placed in the body of Christ. There is one baptism, Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 5. One Lord, one faith, and one baptism when you and I were all, by the work of the Spirit of God, placed in the body of Christ. A one-time event. That's non-repeatable. Now before we look at the reach of Pentecost, I want to draw your attention to one more thing, and that is what we mean when we talk about the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God, when I talk about the Spirit of God or God the Spirit, we're talking about God. We're not talking about a power. We're not talking about a force. We're not talking about some heavenly powerhouse that you and I tap into for a little buzz or for some manifestation. We're talking about God. We're talking about the one who is the third person of the Holy Trinity, God the Spirit. Because our God exists eternally as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And He is at the same time and in all the the same ways, always God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. He never changes. And the Spirit of God has always existed. They are co-equal, they are co-substantial, and they are co-eternal. And the Spirit of God has existed as the Spirit, third person of the Holy Trinity from eternity past. And He will always exist because God's nature never changes. And you and I, as difficult as it is to understand how God can be one God, but three persons at the same time, it's very difficult for us. And you and I can't fully comprehend that, but we can reach out and apprehend it and say, I can understand a little bit of that, but I'll believe it because that's what Scripture reveals. The Scripture is called the Father God, the Son God, and the Holy Spirit God, and yet the three persons are the one God. So when we talk about the Spirit of God, we're not talking about a power. We're not talking about a feeling. We're not talking about a burning in your bosom. We're not talking about some spiritual high that you get. We're not talking about some energy force that you tap into. And we're not talking about a power that you can manipulate. We're talking about the sovereign God who does what He wants and is who He is and does not need you or me. That's the Spirit of God. Now those are the results of Pentecost. Sound, sight, and this speech. Now look at the reach of Pentecost. Verse 5, Luke tells us there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. Luke there, by the way, is speaking from his horizon, not ours, because we know there were not Aborigines, there were not Australians, there were not Chinese there. Luke is basically saying every nation in which the Jews had been dispersed had a representative there on the day of Pentecost. They had all come back to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. Now, why would they be in Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost? Because if you're going to travel a long distance to make it there for Passover, you might as well make a few weeks of it and stay for Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread and then the Feast of Pentecost. And that was what they would do. They would be there for Passover. They would stay there through all of those events and leave after the day of Pentecost. So that's why they have people from every tribe and nation 
there devout Jews who had come to celebrate these feasts. And they're all there in the temple. Now remember, you can do no work on the day of Pentecost. You weren't allowed to work at all. So what are the people doing on the day of Pentecost? They're out and about. They're in the temple. Nobody's out in the fields. Everybody is right in downtown Jerusalem. And this event that God does, He orchestrates on the day of Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit, is as public as public can get. If you cannot put the coming of the Spirit of God on TV and broadcast it all over the world, God does the exact opposite. He brings all of the then-known world to Jerusalem, and He does this right in front of everybody's eyes. So devout men, devout Jews from all of these nations, and then Luke goes through the trouble of listing them for us. In verse 7, they say, How is it that we hear each of them in our own language to which we were born? Look at verse 9. Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. He lists a whole list of them there. Why does he give us that list? You know what he's trying to show us? From day one, the church was an international issue. No longer just Jews. This is an international thing. And he brings all of these nations to Jerusalem. And he does something right in their presence, right under their noses. So from day one, the gospel has an international impact because all these devout Jews have come. They see the Spirit come. They hear Peter's sermon. And then what do they do? Some of them got saved and went back to their home territory. So from day one, the church already has the seeds planted throughout the entire Roman Empire. That's the work of God. That was why it was on the day of Pentecost. And they're all there. So then what happens? They begin to speak in other languages. Now I told you there are two things that Luke in this passage emphasizes. The first is the internationalness of this group. The second is the nature of the tongues. Look what Luke says. Already he said that they began to speak in other tongues. The word tongue is a word that can only mean two things. First of all, that little flap of skin behind your teeth. It's the first thing it can mean. Second, the word tongue can mean a language of a people. And that's it. It doesn't refer to babble. It doesn't refer to ecstatic speech. It's never used of a prayer language. It's used of two things. The flap of skin behind my teeth and a language that is spoken by a people. And Luke says right at the beginning in verse 4, they began to speak in other languages. You can write languages in there. He's not referring to the flap of skin behind his teeth. He's referring to the language. They began to speak in other languages. Now, if there's any doubt as to what the nature of these tongues are, he clears it up by emphasizing it not once and not twice, but three more times in the book, in this passage. Look what Luke says. Verse six. Each one of them was hearing them speak in his own dialectos is the Greek word from which we get our word dialect. His own language. Verse eight. And how is it that we each hear them in our own dialectos? Verse eleven. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own Tongues, our own language. Not just language, but the dialect of the language. So what you have happening here is a supernatural speech miracle where the people are in Jerusalem and they hear this phenomenon, they see these tongues, and then they begin to hear these people speak in their own language. It's a language miracle. They didn't see the apostles just babbling in some prayer language. They didn't see them involved in some esoteric utterance of ecstatic speech. What draws their attention? How is it that we hear these men speaking in our own 
dialects. You know what really amazed them? They're Galileans. You know why that amazed them? Galileans had a reputation for being untaught, unlearned. They could not pronounce guttural sounds. Galileans couldn't. They had these sort of speech, these unique things in their speech. They couldn't pronounce gutturals, and they swallowed their syllables. You understand what I just said? They swallowed their syllables. They swallowed syllables when they spoke. So they had this propensity to not be able to speak guttural sounds, and they had a propensity for swallowing their syllables. The Galileans were hooked on eubonics. They had their own little dialect, their own little way of talking that set them apart and gave them this reputation for being unlearned. And what it is it that amazes all these people who are gathered there from all of these countries? They hear these unlearned Galileans speaking in their own languages. The languages and the dialects to which they're born. It's a speech miracle. Now these apostles didn't learn these languages. They weren't coached in these languages. These are languages that they are able to speak as a supernatural ability. They have never studied these before. They don't know these. This is a work of the Spirit. And they begin to stand up in the presence of all these people, praise God in languages they have never learned. And that draws the attention of these people to these Galileans. How is it that we hear them speak in our tongue, in our language? And that brings us to the third thing that Luke emphasizes, and that is the result or the reaction to Pentecost. The reaction to Pentecost. What do they do? They're marveled, they're perplexed, they're amazed. Some of them say, what could this possibly mean? And there's more to that statement than we're going to go into here this morning. What is it that this could possibly mean? These devout Jews, all of them are amazed at this. And they're asking themselves, what's the meaning of this? They know that this is a supernatural thing. They know that this is a miraculous thing. This is a sign. They know that they're not able to do this themselves. And so they respond with curiosity. What could this mean? What is God trying to show us? What is He doing here? And there's a second reaction. Others began to mock, saying they're full of sweet wine. Verse 13. They're full of sweet wine. They're drunk. This is drunkenness. Uh, it's interesting to me to note that the response to this miracle is both acceptance or interest, intrigue, as well as mockery, because Jesus faced the same thing. They said, show us a sign. He said, I've shown you signs. You don't believe the signs. You don't believe me, the words that I speak. You should believe the works that I do right in your very midst, but you don't. You reject me because you don't hear my voice. You're not of my sheep. And what I want you to notice is that a miracle, a sign, in and of itself does not convince anyone of anything. They still mock. When Jesus performed signs, they said He does it by the power of Satan. When these men manifested a supernatural ability to speak other tongues, they said they're drunk. When it came to Jesus, they just attributed it to the work of Beelzebub. To the apostles, they said they're drunk. Drunk on new wine. Now you and I are tempted to look at the crowd that stands before us and the unbelievers in our lives and Christians fall into this trap every day. We think, if we could just show a sign, if we could raise somebody from the dead, if we could turn water into wine, if we could do some healing, some resurrection, some get a paraplegic up here and have them walk across the stage, if we could cure somebody of cancer, if we could perform some miracle, some sign, then people will believe. Is that true? No. Jesus said they got Moses and the prophets. And if they won't believe Moses and the prophets, they won't believe if one rose from the dead and stood in their midst. They won't believe. The hard heart will not believe even though you perform a miracle right in their midst. 
And that's what they do. They reject it. Now you're going to see how Peter plays on this in a couple weeks when we go into his sermon. Here's the gist of the whole idea of Pentecost. And this is what I want to leave you with. What Luke is trying to drive home to you and I is that this church, the church as an entity, the body of Christ, is not the work of man. It is a divine institution. It is indwelt by the Spirit of God. You and I are indwelt by the Spirit of God individually. And as a church, we are indwelt by the Spirit of God corporately. It is an individual and a corporate institution. And it's not the work of men. And that's why it's important for you and I to understand that the church is not made by men, grown by men, directed by men, led by men, and orchestrated. It's none of that. It's all the work of the Spirit of God. And if there's no Spirit, there's no church. If there's no Spirit, there's no life. And if the Spirit of God is not present, and if He had not done this, there would be no church because He brought it into being. And He did it in such a way as to manifest that in front of everybody and turn everybody's heads and to see this is not the work of 12 men who want to start a movement following a crucified Savior. This is something supernatural. This is something divine. This is something that God has started and God blesses and it's His work. And that viewpoint affects everything that you do. And I'll ask you this morning, how do you view the church? Do you view the church, the body of Christ, as the work of men or as the work of God? Because that influences how you preach, how you teach, how you do ministry, what programs the church puts in place. Your approach to everything is influenced by how you view the church. Let me give you an illustration. One of the things that plagues modern Christianity is the misunderstanding as to the nature of the church. Christians in this country and churches and leadership all across this country are buying into the idea that the church can be run like a religious corporation or like a religious business. And we market ourselves, and that's why we have seeker-sensitive services, and that's why we dumb down messages, and that's why we entertain with drama and skits and all this stuff that we're doing in churches nowadays. That's why we do all of that, because we have this mentality that we can run it according to the methods and means of man and somehow accomplish a divine end. And you can't do that. I was traveling home from Coeur d'Alene this last Friday, and I heard on the radio an advertisement for the Christian Life Impact Conference, which is the formerly the Christian Workers Conference in Spokane. And the advertisement said something to this effect, and this is almost verbatim, word for word. It so caught my attention. They said, this year's Christian Life Impact Conference uh, features nationally recognized speakers and authors who will share with you their ideas on how to reach the lost for Christ. Is the advertisement. I shook my head and I thought to myself, am I the only one in the world that sees a problem with that? Do I care what their ideas are on how to reach the lost for Christ? I really don't. really don't. I don't give a rip what they think about how to reach the lost for Christ. I do care what Scripture says about how to reach the lost for Christ. But I wouldn't pay 10 cents to go hear somebody else's idea. But that's the pragmatism that plagues the church. Because we think that if we can just get it to work, we can get it to work, Here's what we've tried. Here's what we'll do. And here's my ideas. This has worked for us. And that's what plagues Western Christianity like a plague. Luke does not want you and I to fall into that trap. And so he tells us what happened on that first day. And the Spirit of God did it in such a way that nobody could deny this was a divine work. Theophilus, the recipient of this letter, may have been asking himself, what is it that sets Christianity apart from the religions that Rome has to offer? And Luke answered it. This one is a divine work. The church is of no human origin. No group of men could have started this. It's the work of the Spirit of God. And without Him, there is no church. There is no work. There's no ministry. There's no preaching. There's no worship. And there's no growth. 
but it's all the work of the Spirit of God. Let's not forget it. Father, we thank you for your word and what it teaches us about the nature of the church itself. We pray that you would help us to never forget that this thing that we are a part of by your grace is not our doing, it's not anybody else's doing. It's the work and the product of you who loved us in eternity past and brought this into being and have showered your grace through it on us. And we thank you for that truth. We pray that you would help that to influence how we think about church, how we think about our ministries, and everything that we do on a daily basis. We thank you for this time that we've had together in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.